Hi, I'm Shalushi Baxi Ritchie. And I'm Kosha Baxi Karstens. We are sisters and best friends who grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were really loved. We had a lot of friends, but we never felt like we fully fit in. We started to realize that there's probably a lot of other people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was a seed for this podcast. Then during the 2020 election, we watched now Vice President Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence, and we got inspired. We want to hear, share, and amplify the voices of all Americans who have felt othered. We want to give everyone a platform to reclaim their power and their place by standing up and saying, I am speaking. Hi, listeners. We're back this week. Yes, we are. We took a little hiatus because... Um, all of our children uh, went back to school in the last couple of weeks and it was really, really crazy, but we are very excited to be back with the wonderful Karen Rothstein Pineda, who our avid listeners will remember from last season. Yeah, we were lucky to have her back. Um, she's kind of become our uh, resident expert therapist and we're so grateful for her and her willingness to share her insight, um, both from a therapeutic lens, but also, you know, one of the things Kosha and I love about talking to Karen is that Karen will blend her experience as a clinician with her personal experience. And that's such a gift to have someone be able to say, look, this is what's going on in a big picture level. And this is how it plays out for me at least, and maybe for other people as well. Yeah, and you know, what's really, awesome and she she went into this a lot is why she went into counseling and therapy and and how she found the niche that she serves um and i'm gonna let her do the talking because she explains it so beautifully um but at the end of the day um you know if you need someone to talk to find the person who you feel most comfortable with and sometimes that person it looks like you sometimes that person needs to look like you and sometimes that person is not in your immediate vicinity. And um, the one thing we did touch on is that technology and some of the positive things that have happened because of the pandemic um, is that ability to open up for things like therapy outside of your immediate, you know, two mile radius or five mile radius. Absolutely. It was a real gift to talk to Karen. Uh, we hope you enjoy listening to her second podcast episode with us. Second of many, um, and we hope. Yes, second of many. Um, and welcome to the second half of the season. Absolutely. Listen to Karen. She's definitely got some stuff to say. Uh, she is speaking. Karen, you're the first return guest that we have had, yes. so we're very excited. Really? Yeah. I'm flattered. You are our resident therapist, so you will That's be right. back often. Okay, thank you. I'm going to actually put that on my resume, you, that I'm the, I am, I am speaking resident you therapist. Are. Please. You are. That's please like, do. I mean. I feel very proud of that. Uh, well, yeah. We very much appreciate that you, you've taken on the role. We kind of like made you, yes. but that you do it so well has <laughs> been awesome. Yeah. Um, so you get to introduce yourself however you want. Uh, you yeah. know, we still want- Well, before before we get started, I just want to say that um, we've gotten, this season especially, we've gotten so much fantastic feedback about how 
one because you know it's sort of like our guests this season are listening to the podcast from the first season um and then the later guests we have have had a chance to listen to the podcast from this season that we put out at the beginning but all the feedback we're getting right now is oh my gosh your podcast is so great it's such a needed perspective thank you so much um i think people really do appreciate how gently we tread on the stories right we don't ask people to talk about anything they don't want to talk about um and so the space feels real comfortable but i also want to acknowledge that a big part of why we're able to have that kind of impact is because we have your perspective informing the entire season that we're in so thank you well thank you i appreciate that feedback yeah thank you i think one of the things that you said last time that really stuck with me and i think it's interesting because Shayla, she and I both, I think it was part of our philosophy for this podcast was like, you get to tell your story the way you want, you want to tell it. And the way like the guest is like the director of their story. And that, you know, you said something where you go, you know, if there's trauma, you don't have to unpack it. Like sometimes it's there and it's, it's, padded in a special part of your brain for a reason and so you know we've always said like if there's something that you don't want to discuss that's totally off the table that's uncomfortable that's triggering like we don't talk about it and that's kind of just informed the way that we do this is this is not a gotcha and we've found it like you know the feedback that we've been getting is people just being like actually saying like I don't want to talk about that and then as we're talking as the two hours unfolds, they, they're like, well, maybe I could talk about that a little bit. Like they'll kind of dip their toe in the water. And it's just because they feel so comfortable being not pushed that they're able to go there themselves. Exactly. And that's the thing in terms of when I do trauma informed work, I mean, I do a lot of trauma informed work and that's one of the things around it is, if you give people the freedom to not talk about something, they'll feel comfortable because so many people think, oh, I have to talk, if they're gonna make me talk about it and it's too much and it can be. And you don't know what you're opening. Sometimes you're opening up a Pandora's box that you're not ready, you know? And if you're not ready, you're not ready. And if you're not ready, then you're like reliving the trauma just for trauma's sake versus for healing, I can imagine. Right, right. And sometimes it does need to happen with certain modalities. Like I'm thinking about EMDR, for example. I don't know if you know, that's a form of therapy that's done um, for specifically for post-traumatic stress disorder where people, it's, um, it sounds weird, but weirdly it works for certain kinds of things where you basically, how I explain it to people, you're basically simulating REM sleep in a session and helping a client reprocess trauma using, it's bilateral stimulation. It used to be eye movements where you would literally like work with the client, like have them move their eyes back and forth. Now you can do like, um, there's like tapping things you can get that people use as well, or just some sort of like simulation on both sides of the body. And it, from my understanding of it, granted, this is a very unscientific way of explaining it, is that it's simulating REM sleep, 
So you're making a trauma, which is kind of stuck in your short term memory, like it happened right now, to Oh, it happened a long time ago. And it helps reprocess some of that. Um, and so in that situation, it is sometimes a little bit more necessary, but it's kind of like you prepare the client for that. And you have to have certain coping skills and you have to really make sure they're ready to do that. And that's that. not the first thing that you do when they walk into your office, right? Like it's, it's, it's a process <laughs> to get there. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it depends. But at the same time, it depends. Like I don't do EMDR um, personally, but I have had some training around it. And I've done, I've dabbled with it a little bit. I just, it's just not the best modality for me to do. I'm just not, I'm not as comfortable with it as I am with other things. But there are people who come in for like one specific trauma. Like I'm thinking about one individual, a child that I worked with who just saw a scary movie on TV and she couldn't sleep. And so we reprocessed it, took us three sessions, but she already had good coping skills. She had one specific thing. And took it was really fast, but yeah, other people when they have those when there's a lot more stuff, you do have to provide help with coping skills. It takes a while. I can imagine. Yeah, I wish someone had given me therapy after uh, therapy after it. I watched some scary movies because I could have really used the help getting back to sleep. Back. Oh my gosh! Well, it's actually funny you say that because I'm afraid of alien movies, like terrified of them, and. It's because if you look at the alien movies, they're always like in the woods and like some really clear space. It looks like just where I grew, I grew up near Akron, Ohio. Oh, boy. oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I can see that. Imagine being like 12 and watching an alien movie being like, oh my gosh, that looks like my house. The woods. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm terrible. And it's like, yeah, I could probably use, we all could use a little bit of EMDR for something. For your therapy for something, you know, absolutely. Yeah. So before we get too much farther, I do want you to introduce yourself and, um, I do want you to say I am speaking, but I want you to introduce yourself however you'd like. Um, you could even say that you're a resident therapist. So please, and then, uh, and then we'll jump in. All right. So I'm Karen Rothstein Pineda. I'm, um, I am speaking. And I am proud to be, I am speaking's resident therapist. Um, I have a private practice here in Oak Park, Illinois. I've been been in practice as a therapist since 2003 and opened up this private practice five years ago, really to be able to provide support and therapy to um, individuals of color, the BIPOC community, but also LGBTQ folks. And I've done a lot of work with people who are both LGBTQI as well as BIPOC. And um, the, that intersection, I think, is a very needed service that's not really there for too many folks. And yeah, so I've been doing this for, gosh, at work, I've been doing for about 10 years, um, at least, I think. No, actually, in 2000. So I, I um, started doing this when I, before I'd even graduated from grad school. I was working at a Red Freight Crisis Center, and I found that, you know, speaking Spanish, I was pretty much the only one. And so I saw a lot of the Spanish-speaking clients. And a lot of them were also from the LGBTQI community. 
And I started just really, a, really being able to create a focus with that. And then also seeing a lot of black folks and a lot of um, native folks and a lot of East Southeast Asian and Asian folks. And it just kind of built from there. And yeah, so I've been doing that. I was the Latino services coordinator at Southern Center on Halstead for a few years. When I moved into private practice, that was really my focus. And it continues to be working with both communities. I think a lot of people want somebody that mirrors them. And I'm hoping that with our practice to be able to provide that mirror. This season, this season, um, as our listeners know, and you know, but just as a reminder, last season was about first generation Americans. And then this season, season two, is about folks who really just are somewhere on the sexuality and gender spectra. So we've, we spoke to a transgender girl who is 16 years old. We've talked to, to a drag queen. Um, we talked to someone who is asexual. So, you know, we really are excited to talk to you because of how you really embody, you know, the, ther- the therapy that it takes for some of these people in those intersections and along that spectrum. So definitely welcome back. Okay. So, so Karen, and, and feel free to cut me off or, or not want to talk about this because you are here as a therapist, but okay. you had the last, last season, you did such a beautiful job of speaking from a, like a therapy and educational standpoint, like a clinical standpoint, but interweaving your personal story. Um, you are a member of the LGBTQIA plus community. Yeah. Uh, how much of your your upbringing and your identity kind of informed your decision or drove your decision to go into the type of therapy that you that you provide? Well, part of it was, and I think I mentioned this before. I remember trying to find a therapist that looked like me, that mirrored me, that could understand me, and what I found was. I would go to a Latino therapist and they wouldn't really understand the LGBTQ component. I mean, I've um, identified as queer. I I am attracted to men and women. I'm I'm basically attracted to masculinity, but it doesn't, I mean, basically it doesn't really matter the sex, but I I am attracted to masculinity. And a lot of the Latino therapists didn't really understand that. And granted, this was also gosh, 20 years ago. I'm aging myself right now. And um, but also I would go to a white therapist and they didn't really get the Latino component. Like they didn't understand like a lot of the family component and a lot of the like, why don't you just come out kind of stuff to my family. So and I found that I really want, I really craved somebody that understood both. And I saw people like this in the community. Like I remember um, there was a group way back when called Amigas Latinas that was like a social group for LBT identified women. And it was really refreshing for me to be there. And it felt good to have that that mirroring however I didn't have a therapist like that and I still really I don't know too many therapists that also that still are however I think it's 
there are more therapists, I think, who do understand it and who are able to understand that intersectionality. So anyway, so anyway, I was looking for that and realized that there wasn't a lot of it. And so I just started doing it by default. I think things have changed a lot over the years. I, I have met more, much more, many more queer identified Latino therapists, Latinx therapists. Part of it was I was kind of looking for a therapist and I didn't find it. So I became that. Um, but also it was just kind of like people found out I was around and the call started coming. Referrals started coming because it was such a rare find 20 years ago. It's not as a rare find now. But I mean, it's still it's hard because it is a field that's dominated by white, straight women. White, straight women. In terms of therapy, right? Yeah, therapy. I work in mental health and psychiatry is dominated by older white, straight men. Yes. Therapy is dominated by white straight women. So do you think that that wasn't around because there was a stigma against coming out? Because like you said, you know, when your therapists were like, just come out, like what's the big deal? Not what's the big deal, but just come out to your family. But there was a stigma of coming out in, in Latinx communities. Is that why like maybe that therapists just weren't coming out at the time, 20 years ago? No. I think it was just a lack of training, honestly. Um, I remember, I mean, the training I got, I loved my grad school. I really loved it. But I remember, because um, I, at the when I was in, I was a unique grad student because I was already working as a counselor when I was in grad school. I um, had a job at the YWCA doing sexual assault counseling. And so I had gotten a lot of training from like Howard Brown and from different places around LGBTQ issues. And I remember learning about it in grad school and being like, oh, no, 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 no. It's like this. This is what I thought. I know this. Is, and really, honestly, and I hate saying it, knowing more than the instru- than the professors. We've all been there, right? Yeah. And it was something, I, I mean, I, I sound kind of um, arrogant saying it. And I don't mean to. I, lo- I mean, my, my grad school was amazing. It was that I had received some very specific in-depth training from folks who had been in the field for years. And from and this these are these were people that um, were training therapists all over around LGBTQ issues. And so there just wasn't a lot of knowledge. And there wasn't a lot of like knowledge around communities of color yet. I mean, you have to remember, I went to grad school in the late 90s, early 2000s, so it was 20 years ago. Um, things have definitely changed. But back then, I don't know how much, but back then it was just really bad. Not really bad. There was a lot, there was little knowledge about it and little, there was not a lot of information. And so it was more that. And I think, and I don't know if, I don't know if there was people coming. I, that's actually a really good question around people coming out. I think that there may have been, you know, 
It's um, one of those things you know, that like therapist. It's, it's such a theoretical question because you can't go back and do any kind yeah. of, you know, like try to see what, what that was. But, you know, we talked to one of our guests um, who, who just was aired last week, uh, Alicia was saying like, you know, when she came out, which was about 20 years ago, even, I mean, she came out, let's say 15 years ago. She's like, it wasn't mm-hmm. a good time. Like it was not a good time for a 20 year old to, come out of the closet and she's it she's no. you know and she very openly recognized her privilege she's a white woman right mm-hmm. so she very much was like I'm white and it was relatively quote easy for me to come out and it still was really hard in you know that like early 2000s for lesbians of a certain age I guess to really you know like in that 20 to 35 year age range to come out it just wasn't a good time for gay people you know it wasn't you have to remember like 2004 it's funny again I'm gonna get all political I hope that's okay always so Trump getting elected was very traumatic right and it was 2004, when Bush got reelected, was a similar experience, not as horrible as 2016. I think that was just the worst. But I remember, like, just being so scared back then about like, being like, wow, people really like, because at at the time, too, there was Proposition 8 came out where it was basically making marriage illegal in California, Mm -hmm. I guess that was really hard. And it was like this message of, wow, half the country doesn't want me, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. And so, and I remember back, you know, and even when my son was born, because I, you know, I got pregnant in 2007. I remember we had to like go to a lawyer and my, my wife, my, my ex-wife had to do an adoption. My, we used a known donor and he actually had to give up parental rights. Wow. To for us to be able to because we weren't even allowed to get married back then. Right. And we had and granted, we were able to use a lot of our economic privilege to kind of fix those things because it cost a lot of money. But it was just this whole ordeal. And I remember a lawyer saying, I can't guarantee it's gonna stick because things can change. Right. Wow. You know, and obviously it did. I mean, he's 13 <laughs> and knock on wood. And then being being a member of the BIPOC community, we just spoke with someone there. Their uh, her name is Anna. She her episode will come out in about a month. But she is she identifies as a black queer woman, and she was like, when you enter a room, when you even if it's even if it's a an issues driven room, you're there for a reason to talk about an issue. People want to say, okay, are you here to be queer? Or are you here to be black? Or are you here to be a woman? Yeah. You don't get to be yep. all three at the same time. And, and the thing is, it's hard to separate those two because it's like, I can't take off one, one identity, right? I can't, I'm all, I'm walking around as a queer Latina, you know, a queer Latina female, you know, I just, and a mom. Right. And how can you how can you speak about queer rights without talking about black women's queer rights, you know, or black queer women's rights, I should say, like, they all inform each other. 
Well, the thing about it is nobody tells like a white person, are you here to be white? Are you here to be a woman? Are you here to be a business owner? Are you here to be, you have who you are is all in, you can't separate. It's very, I mean, because you're bringing yourself and that's also I think why I speak about my own experiences because that is what I'm bringing to the table I'm bringing that mirror and so I can't like listen to you know a 25 year old talk about coming out to their family without remembering my own experience and without I know I'm not going to like necessarily give advice because that's, not, that's like a no-no, that's a no-no in therapy, but I am at least listening through a lens of, yeah, I went through that. And I know, I don't know your ex specific experience, but I get it. Right. Yeah. So is that something that you hear a lot from your clients is, you know, when I walk into a space or when I'm trying to figure something out um, that, that the identities get are, I mean, our identities are all tangled. One doesn't exist without mm -hmm. the other, um, but they're actually being asked in public spaces to be this or that, and just sort of extract one thread from the, you know, the tangle that is a person's, you know, being. Right. Well, about it though is people don't, we don't talk about it specifically. People come and they want to talk about work. They want to talk about their roommate. They want to talk about their relationship. And it's more like, uh, she's not going to judge me because of this. Mm. This is a safe space. And I can talk about it. But it's more, I mean, people come to therapy to talk about their depression, their anxiety. It may be related to growing up Latino, growing up Black, growing up South Asian, or whatever identity, or like LGBTQ. Sure. No, you're right, Karen. It's so rare that's, I mean, rare, almost unheard of that someone would come to therapy by saying, you know, I'm really struggling with my identity as a South Asian woman who is married to a white guy and doesn't conform to the gender norms of either, you know, either culture, right? It's more like, I'm really arguing with my husband right. because I don't feel like we get each other. Exactly. And so, and then, and then that's kind of where you would bring up some of the cultural mm -hmm. issues, but it may just be that he needs to do the dishes once in a while, you know, but it's not going to be something like, gee, I think it's a cultural issue, which I think yeah. that would be something that a very well-meaning, very wonderful therapist might do white therapists may do because they want to be culturally supportive and they may need to have information that they don't have but it may not be relevant in that moment am I making sense yeah because because sometimes it's like it's part of also knowing I'm thinking out loud too it's like knowing when to bring it up and also giving the person just permission to be somebody who argues with her husband every once in a while. Sure. And sure. we all argue with our spouses. Yeah. I, I can also imagine that for clients who 
don't fit the hegemony, right? Like not white cisgendered, middle class-ish affluent, um, that that they have to, heterosexual, right? All those things that we spend a lot of time, we, I think, you know, I can include all of us in there, explaining our, you know, doing the emotional labor of explaining some parts of our lives to people and our, you know, just in our daily lives, like at our jobs or, you know, with sometimes with, even with your friends where if you're friends with people who don't come from the same background as you, it's like, oh, they're like, what's that about? And then you have to do that emotional labor as well. To have to then do that emotional labor with your therapist as well, particularly out of context, I think can be very jarring. And I, I see just how you're like, oh, that would totally turn me off to be like, I'm here for you to listen to me. And now I'm actually doing emotional labor to support the therapy process. Exactly. And the thing about it too is you can't assume that you know the experiences the same way though. I grew up in Akron, Ohio, and I can't pretend to know the experience of somebody that grew up in Chicago, right? Like we've had two different experiences. Or even, but or if I grew up, somebody, my my son who grew up in Oak Park, maybe when he grows up and starts talking to somebody that grew up on the north side of Chicago, they're very different experiences, and you can't assume that you know exactly what their life was like. But it's more like, uh, oh, I can't. I'm asking you these questions not because I'm trying to learn from you because I don't want to learn about I'm not here to learn about your I want to learn about your culture I'm going to go read a book or I'm going to go do a training or go do some research it's I'm curious about what it was like for you to grow up you know south side of Chicago versus you know because even like living next door you could have had different experiences am I make if I make does that make Ab- sense absolutely and I know we talked about that in the first season with um the you know, first generation Americans that someone came on, our, Shayla, she's friend, Anne came on and was like, oh, I, I just want to make sure because, you know, you've talked to several East Asian people, but at the same time, if you've talked to one Korean person, you've only gotten the experience of one Korean person. Mm-hmm. Right. Shayla, she and I coming from the same home. We still have had very different, yeah perspectives on we understand each other we understand oh i i know why you must be mad at mom about that but i don't necessarily have that experience Mm -hmm. right right so i was gonna ask you know as a therapist because this season we're talking about you know lgbtqi plus plus what are some of the things that you do kind of have to unwrap when let's say a a new client who's, who is, I I mean, how does that really unravel? Do they come in and they say they're depressed um, because my parents don't accept me? Like, where does that tend to start? Hmm. That's a good question. Depends on the person, honestly. Some people, and the thing is, some people do come in and say, I am, you know, this, I, I have this identity and I had this situation and I need to, unpro- I need to unpack it because I experienced some ism, right? That does happen. Um, a lot of times though, it's more like I happen to be trans and I'm depressed. 
and let's talk about it. Or sometimes it is something like I'm, I'm a lesbian and my, I'm depressed because my family won't talk to me. But it, so it really depends. That really depends on the person, honestly. Yeah, that's, and that's the thing. It's like, it's such a diverse community. The reason somebody comes to therapy is, I mean, every single person is different. Yeah, but as you start to unpack stuff, you say, okay, maybe you say, oh, well, do you think that might have, you know, do you think that you're concerned about what people think because you've had to really, you know, this is a common one actually, because you've really had to have this image as a woman of color, as a BIPOC woman, where mm -hmm. you have to present an image. And so you're anxious about not what people think because of that kind of a thing, or maybe because you know you're you're tired of hiding who you are all the time or maybe it's because you're getting re maybe you're getting made fun of at school for being the only white only the, the only non-white kid or whatever you know it's so it's something that you unpack as it, as you go along I mean as I think as I said it before sometimes people just want to come in and talk about being depressed and they don't even understand why they're depressed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or they know and you're talking about that but and sometimes people are depressed or anxious or whatever, just because they are, you know, it's also there's very much a lot of research on sometimes it's just brain stuff. Yeah. So what are there any particular, you know, just sort of thinking in the aggregate, are there any issues that seem to arise more for people who are not heteronormative um, that then than for people who are, you know, uh, heterosexual. It's changing. If you had asked me this 10 years ago, I would have had a completely different answer. Oh, yeah, so let's start there. Like what would it have been like 10 years ago? So, well, 10 years ago, yes. It, you would have seen a lot more of, I wanna come out and I can't, or, um, I'm experiencing this at work or, you know, kids at school are making fun of me because I'm gay. Now it's be almost become kind of just so mainstream. You know, I see so many young people like, oh yeah, I'm non-binary or I'm demisexual where I've had to look up stuff and be like, well, what is that? You know? My almost 14 year old is uh, identifies as non-binary and the biggest challenge is remembering to use the correct pronouns because yeah. for the first 12 and a half years, it was she, and now it's they, and just getting into that groove. But I think, I mean, maybe it's indicative that there are so many more people like me and Kosha, parents to children or friends or, you know, brothers and sisters are like, okay, right. Um, and I think it's also something that's specific to here, right? I think it's something that's very Oak Park-ish. Yes, oh, yeah. Oak Park, granted, I love Oak Park, River Forest. It's a great area. And it does have its limitations. But one of the things that I think that we do well is that it's a very accepting community. And so, yeah, you see kids just be like, yeah, I'm non-binary or, and I see it also just the Chicago area. Now, granted, there are 
I know that if we were living in, you know, Southern Illinois, it would mm-hmm. be more, I can't come out to my parents. And you do see that where you see a lot of families who, for example, one parent can't accept their child or um, where you see situations where somebody's coming out as trans and their partner is just like, I can't deal with this. So you do see that now. And you did see that 10 years ago. And you do see, and I'm sure in certain parts of the country, you're going to see that. Here, it's so different. It's just, it's actually really, it kind of floors me sometimes to see how, how like a lot of kids are just like, yeah, this is who I am. And totally fine with it. And sometimes not. Sometimes they want to talk about it. Or sometimes they want to deal with their homophobic mom or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, but it's just different now, I think. And I think as our country becomes more accepting, which I think we are going to be, um, it's going to just get even better, which is awesome, I think. But I do also know that in certain parts of the country, and I'm actually now I'm thinking out loud. I'm curious at how telehealth is going to be changing that because I know in Illinois it was recently passed that telehealth will have to be reimbursed mm-hmm. at the same rates as in person. So it's very possible that we're going to get people from Springfield Alabama. or well, not Alabama. It has to be Illinois because I'm we're only licensed in Illinois unless I get, unless I'm unless I'm um license in that state where they so are it's, it's not only where you are practicing but where your patients are coming from well what's crazy is i can practice i can see people who are in illinois i can be in hawaii i can be in i could be anywhere in the world as long as my client is in illinois oh, i can see them okay. however i can't see it if i if i have a client who's vacationing in florida Unless I'm licensed to practice in Florida, I can't see them. Where they physically are. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. Fascinating. That's yeah. really interesting. But you're right, Karen, that it has uh, that has tremendous implications for who can see what kind of therapist. Right? Even if right. even you know, even if there aren't any complicating factors, like you live in a little town. And everyone knows everyone else and you can't go in, you can't walk into the therapist's office because everyone will see you. So you do telehealth. Um, But even then just thinking about like, you know, Kosh and I growing up in a little town, not to say that we maybe couldn't have gone to therapy, but that it would have been really hard to find someone who understood, understood what we were, who, what we had gone through. Um, and had some context for life experiences. So to be able to think, oh, could I find someone in Chicago and do telehealth on the computer? I mean, that would not have been possible <laughs> in 1990. Um, but, uh, <laughs> the, you know, the implications are really amazing for people of color, for, you know, people on the sexuality spectra or on the identity spectra to be like, I don't, either I don't feel safe or there's nobody here for me. Yeah. Right, 
Right. And so I'm curious because now it's into law until 2027. So the next six years at the very least, and I'm going to take, I think it's a safe bet to assume that if it's going well, it will continue. I'm knocking on wood, but I think our field has changed. I totally agree. The world has changed. And I think that, you know, people are talking about like post pandemic, we're going to go back to normal, go back to normal. And it's like, no, I don't think that we're going to go back to that because there are a lot of things like even talking, I mean, all of these other communities, I think we're going to see push back on like, I'm not going back to that. Like think about the disabled, you know, right. the, the disabled community and how the pre-pandemic world really was ableist in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, a lot of people yeah. with handicaps were told they couldn't uh, work from home. You can't work from home. You have to come in the office. Well, suddenly when the world shuts down and everyone, lo and behold, can work from home because it's in the company's best interest. Now, you know, that gives, that actually has given power to some of these disabled communities saying like, mm-hmm. oh, no, 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 we can work from home, you know? Yeah. And I think too, like, I think before the pandemic, we didn't realize we could. It was funny, about a month before the pandemic hit, I had a retreat at my house and we were talking about where we wanted the practice to go. And one of the things that I said, like, I wanted to eventually move to some sort of telehealth. And we were all like, yeah, but that's just really going to be really hard. Because a lot of it was because of insurance issues, because just how to do it, right? And we learned very quickly that, yeah, you can. And then insurance companies were like, yeah, if you can. And it increases access and it just changes so much. It's a lot of, so I think you're right. We're not going to want to go back to that because we're realizing this works. Yeah. I was actually just speaking with someone today about how they have this office sort of in old Irving Park, but they're like, yeah, but we want to move offices and we want to move down near like Union Park area because we want to have a coffee roastery and our office. Wait, but you just told me that you were looking at hiring people across the country not focusing locally because we don't need the physical space. And now you're telling me that you're looking for an office because we do need the physical space. Now, I'm certainly not the kind of person who thinks everyone must come in all the time, but I think, and this is where I'm going to loop back and say this is where it makes sense, which is, or where it connects, which is this, the opportunity to think broadly about who we might hire in, or who we might engage, not just hire, but who we can bring into certain circles allows, you know, once again, for, for in, in group therapy, for example, or in support groups or whatever, where I can't make it, I can't make it to Devon once a week. And that's just being, you know, that's within driving distance, but I certainly couldn't make it down to Carbondale once a week. Um, or having someone from Carbondale come up to Chicago, but with technology, it is possible. And so I think all of these groups that have been marginalized in some way, whether we're people of color, whether we're people of disabilities, um, whether we're uh, people who have, you know, sort of off the sort of heteronormative, gender normative, you know, mm-hmm. line, this is our opportunity to push back and say, actually, no. There are, we can push for more inclusivity and this is a breaking point to think about what that might look like for everybody, yeah. right? In work, 
in school and social settings, in therapeutic settings, um, in medical settings. Yeah, exactly. I feel she brought up the the term uh, group therapy, like group sessions. Um, I would love to talk to you about that because when we're talking about feeling included, when we're talking about feeling um, not othered, right? The whole idea of being othered is being alienated, being isolated. When you bring people into a group and you say like, no, there are people who look like you. There are people with you know similar experiences. Um, I would imagine that group therapy is something that could go very, very far with LGBTQA plus and and the BIPOC community and the intersections of those. Would that be would that be a correct assumption yes. or? Yeah, I I agree. Now, granted, I say that now. Granted, we haven't done a whole lot of groups. Part of it, I think, is because pre pandemic, it was hard to get a group of five, six people together in one room. And then the pandemic happened and it was just impossible <laughs> for, it was impossible. It was just too much. We had yeah. just had too much work on our hands and then to kind of just really shift anything. And I think now I think things are going to be coming down a little bit. It might be something, a good thing that to kind of start doing because you're absolutely right groups can be very very beneficial and I see it with kids we, I think a lot of kids and younger people are doing it naturally where they're going on TikTok or they're going on mm -hmm. Instagram or they're playing a video game and mm -hmm. playing Minecraft with somebody that's in California or you know going on these discussion boards and talking to other like trans kids or talking to other um gay kids or whatever and so you see that more happening just organically mm -hmm. I think it's just yeah. kind of like I think for adults it might be something that's not as organic we talked about we talked to somebody who was asexual and she said that without the internet community you would we felt so isolated you feel broken you feel yeah like I'm sick there's something wrong with me and until the internet really was happening and saying you know there were discussion boards saying like this is how I feel and and you go like oh I'm not alone uh the two of us know someone who's very dear to us has been dealing with chronic depression for a long time um pretty much unmanaged and we have talked to this person about going into therapy and, and also like finding group you know like uh, support groups and the pushback seems to be what good will that be what am I going to do just sit around and talk about my pain and then hear other people talk about their pain can you talk about why group therapy works especially in some of these marginalized communities well again it's about seeing other people that are just going through your experience like little things like oh yeah you know my mom didn't talk to me for three years too or you know those kinds of things or yeah I did this and this is what worked for me and there can be a lot more of that advice giving. Mm. Um, but also though too, is when somebody is super depressed, getting out of bed is a challenge. I mean, I have worked with people where their goal for the week is to get up out of bed three times and go brush their teeth and then go back to bed. Having to make a phone call, talk to somebody, 
now and right now, especially getting on a wait list because pretty much everybody I know is full. So calling somebody, getting on a wait list, having to explain what's going on to somebody, it takes a challenge. And so a group actually for somebody that just may be just too overwhelming, it may be that they just need to like, it may be therapeutic to just call somebody mm. and leave them a, a leave a voicemail or send an email or go to a website and just look at this or listen to this podcast. That may be what they can do right now. It may be that in three years, they remember, oh yeah, I, I remember, you know, I talked, it's Karen. I heard Karen on, you know, on, and I am speaking. I'm going to Google and call, but it takes time. It's about planning. I think I see more about it as planting seeds. And when people are ready, they will call. It just may take a long, it may take a long, long time before they're ready. You are a very patient person. <laughs> well, I know. And I, I'm not, <laughs> it's kind of like, but I, I remind, I remind myself of that too, where it's like, yeah, you know, today I'm telling them to brush their teeth every week, every day, but, but I'm reminding myself of that, that you're planting seeds. And it takes a long time for somebody who's very depressed. You got to think about it as this is an illness. You can't tell somebody with cancer to just, oh, just go for a walk. Or this is going to help you. It takes a long time. You know, I think what's a little in the, in the analogy you just gave, like, oh, you can't tell someone with cancer just to go for a walk. No, that's true. But there's a difference between telling someone to go for a walk and like, you need to go to your, like, you need to go see your oncologist, right? The analogy here is that someone with depression and it, it's very, it's like, I'm not, this is not victim blaming at all. Right. But the yeah. insidious part of depression is that it actually turns off an ability, a person's ability to do the thing that they need to do to help themselves not be depressed. Right. Yeah. So cancer, like, I'm a cancer survivor. It couldn't be okay. the kind of thing where it's, uh, and it's fine. Like I have zero issues about it. I'm, I'm one of those people where I'm like, I'm pretty open about it. And I actually like, I have made jokes about it and um, I'm okay. not offended by many things like that. So it's not a big deal. If I were saying like, well, I guess, you know, I should just do some aromatherapy oils. It's no, you need to go and get your chemo or whatever. See your doctor. Yeah. It's like that level of thing where it's like, if I just ignore the issue, maybe it will go away. But this is also, I mean, this goes back to BIPOC communities, I think, and generationally too. So as we loop that back around, you know, this Gen X generation is sort of straddling the fence, particularly outed communities, right? Where it's like mm -hmm. BIPOC communities or um, LGBTQ communities or disabled, you know, people on, with disabilities, which is like, Part of it, part of you is like, I'm just supposed to suck it up because that's what I've heard my whole life. And part of me is a part of you is like, no, I actually need some help and I want to make my life better. So we kind of straddle it. The generation above us, the boomers are like, suck it up. Don't talk to anybody. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, you know, as we think about this person, uh, that is a message they have received their whole life. So, yeah, and I will say if you repeat the same message a lot, eventually it sticks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't be obvious about it, but it's right. kind of like if you just keep dropping the, if you just keep saying, well, when you're ready to go to therapy, 
we'll call, you know, mm. let us know, or here's a number. That's fantastic. That's a great trip. Yeah. And like in this, for this particular situation, a doctor telling you to go to therapy goes a long mm. way. That's a helpful. long, long, long way. Because doctors are an authority. I think that's very true with BIPOC communities, uh, or at least immigrant communities, right? That like, there are certain authorities that really like you don't cross. So, mm-hmm. you know, your mm-hmm. daughter or your sister-in-law or your whoever else telling you, even your, your spouse telling you, you know, you need to get help. It, it won't go anywhere. But if there is a physician nearby, uh, even a dentist, if a dentist was like, you need to go to therapy, yeah. like that, right, right. that level of authority becomes um, like, you don't cross it. I, the doctor told me to do this. Uh, that's de- that's definitely true in the Indian community. Yeah. Yeah. But also too, I'm going to say this is think about how often people procrastinate their own health stuff. Like I need to go to a chiropractor for some like weird back pain that I'm having. I've had this back pain for like three months. Have I called my chiropractor? No. Right. (laughs) And it's not even, and it's not even that I'm scared or there's, or there's barriers. It's that I'm lazy and I don't have time. And I forget. And the next thing I know, it's like nine o'clock at night. And I'm like, oh, God, I forgot to call again. So imagine me. I'm high functioning. I'm reasonably healthy, I think. And I'm reasonably my mental health, I think, is reasonably in a good place. If I have a back pain for three months, like to the point where I had to get a new chair <laughs> because of my back pain, and I still procrastinate, right. imagine being depressed. Yeah. Right. And, and, and we all do it. We all procrastinate. I mean, we all procrastinate on our stuff. And I think if you think about it like that, it can help. I think at least understand where they're coming from. Not to say that it's not frustrating as hell. Not, I mean, it is so frustrating to see somebody in pain and giving them a tool that can help. And having them procrastinate on it, I think is one of the most frustrating things, especially when it's somebody that you care about. And then, and then to see that person in pain and see the person then complain about now complain is the wrong word. That's going to make it sound like just bitching about it, but like then Mm -hmm. talk about the depression, talk about what's bothering them, talk about how bad it is and how, you know, just, you know, it'll just be better when it's over and things like that. And then it's like, I'm not your therapist, right? Like mm-hmm. I am not licensed for, I'm not educated or, or, or prepared, trained for this. I can't help you. All it's doing to me is scaring me or frustrating me or, or mm-hmm. giving me anxiety, right? Like I, I, and then you feel so helpless being the person who, loves this right. person. Yeah. Do you know one of the things that I'm thinking about is there are there is like a school of thought in um in psychology where you're training lay people to provide basic therapy. Like I'm thinking about this was years ago when I learned about it. And I don't know if it's still a thing, but I think it is where they trained hairdressers in the African-American community on some basic active listening skills. Because 
you know, a lot of African-American women aren't going to go to a therapist, but they go to their, they go get their hair done, you know, all, you know, once a week or once a month or however long. And they sit there for hours. My hairdresser knows everything about me. Right. Yeah. And to have this person be trained in some basic active listening, some not obviously they can't do like treat therapy, you know, treatment for depression, but they can do some basic work around it. That I think bridges the gap to get people to therapy um, or to at least kind of plant, start planting seeds saying, okay, you know what? I can't help you with that. Wow. That's a lot. But you know what? I know this person, here's her card. She can go, you know, next week, Hey, did you call that person? Because it's really different. And I'm, I think I know who this particular person is, so I don't know. But it's, it's very different when it's like a relative or a family member because nobody's going to listen. I mean, my parents yeah. don't listen to me, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, but you, you bring up a really interesting um, strategy for intervention, uh, which, you know, if we pivot or connect it back to this issue of generations, right? So the boomer, the older generation was like, nope, suck it up. This Gen X sort of where we are and like millennials are a little bit like 50, 50, mm -hmm. some, you know, we're like, so maybe we're getting into a little bit later in the game, but we're actually like, I'm tired of the BS that I've been living with for most of my life. Yeah. I look at, you know, the, the younger generation that, that the Gen Z kids and they are all like, I got anxiety and I have this and I'm in, ther and I'm in therapy and I'm by, you know, I'm, I'm bisexual and whatever it is, right. They're so out there. And so this is where I feel like technology is amazing. Um, of course it has its downside, right? But, you know, I know my, my kids watch, one of my kids is watching any number of TikTok videos. And even in the stream of what comes up, there are videos that where someone is talking about dealing with depression or is talking about I'm non-binary and what does that mean? Or um, I'm, you know, demisexual and this is, these are five things about demisexuals you probably didn't know or whatever it is, right? So the words are out there, the concepts are out there, they're a little bit normalized. And yet that it's, young people are still loath to talk to their parents about tough things. Some things never change, right? Um, mm. So what do you think about the idea of engaging young people as peer educators, peer listeners, right? To do the same work that you just discussed work now I'm just making a job but you know provide, work, yeah. provide the same support that you just described with African-American hairdressers um and I've heard it's a community health worker model um I actually mm -hmm. studied that in graduate school where they trained black oh, women okay. in, in in uh in hair salons to provide important information about um blood pressure breast cancer just heart like, disease I would just there like you to go. point out mm -hmm. that like that is brilliant that is brilliant. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. The three of us is, you know, Karen, I mean, your, your whole kind of vibe as a therapist is like meeting the client where they are, right? Like, I'm not going to push yes. you to say something that you're not ready to say. That's where we are as podcasters. Like, let's talk about what you need to talk about. And I love that. What's it called? Social community health, community health, health workers. workers. Yeah. Like that's such a beautiful concept is like, stop pushing and actually start looking at what, where you can help, where you can insert 
the resources to to meet your community where they are. It's a public health mental health approach to influencers. I love it. It's that's, the same it, model, that's what right? TikTok influ- that's what like social media influencers are, right? Yeah. It's, it's very right. It's so true because so, but it's so funny. The reason I'm, I laugh when you were talking about it is my son will walk up to me and be like, I was triggered by that because I have social anxiety. And I'm like, dude, you have no idea what triggered me. And you do not have social anxiety, <laughs> but you know, but it's the whole idea of it's so normal for people. It's, it's so normalized around them. Or I, I see so many kids who come in here saying, oh, I have panic attacks. What, what, what do you mean? I got nervous before my test. To me, that's not a panic attack. You're still anxious, but that's not a panic attack. And that's okay. But, but you know, but I think it, it normalizes the experience for them. And I think, yeah, and finding ways to normalize it. But the thing is, it's not just a one person issue. It's a culture. You're absolutely right. It's a boomer issue. It's a Gen X issue. Honestly, it's also, I think, uh, unfortunately a red state versus blue state issue where we live in a in an area where these things are so normalized and in certain parts of the country and in certain areas and in certain generations it's not and so you do need to have people at the hairdresser at the at the grocery store at the you know the tarot card reader you know the the person where somebody's going to go and it's okay and it's normal and it's fine. So with kids, it's TikTok, you know, TikTok and you, I mean, my son watches way too much TikTok and YouTube, but I mean, but he learns a lot on there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's funny that you say that Karen, just, it remind me, we grew up with a physician father and trying to get out of Mm -hmm. school by saying you're sick never worked. Like we could never fake, we could never play hooky. We could never fake being sick. And that reminds me of what you were saying with your son. Like, don't pull those words out of your pocket. I know what they mean. <laughs> You're not triggered and you don't have social anxiety. <laughs> my seven year old, my, oh, she's not even seven. She'll be seven next week. She told me the other day that um, she was, a, uh, she's like, I find that offensive. I said something. And she goes, I find that offensive. I was like, do you? And then she goes, you're offensing me. So I was like, so you don't know what that means if you Aww. can't even use the word, right? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, you're offensing That's good. me. Offensing me, yeah. But, but, but you know what, though? At the same time, I think it gives kids the language to say in normal, like, between, like, TikTok, YouTube, and the internet, talking about it more it is becoming more of a normalized thing and I think it's just figuring out a way to do it for older generations I think you know I think what's other also really interesting about this is you know we talked to someone who's a gen x or he's 40 between 40 and 45 I think um gay man drag queen um who talked about how you, you know sort of every generation thinks it's fighting the first fight to ever have been fought on this stuff. Right. And it's hard to imagine what a previous generation went through. So he was saying, you know, I see these young kids now and they're like, I'm this and I'm that. And, you know, people going to gay couples going to prom and, you know, 
two women being named prom queens together and, you know, things like that. And they're, you know, they're together and, and sort of how the movement has pushed for so much more access and rights and respect for certain people. And yet young people, they see the battles ahead of them, not what's been won behind them. And so really thinking about, again, like how does the internet create community, not just to normalize things, although that's the first step, right? And sort of being like, oh, there are other people like me. I don't, I'm not a bad person and there's nothing wrong with me. Um, but then how does it mobilize people to take action, particularly when people might be scattered all over the country or all over the world in some ways, you know? Right. And having said, one of the things I was wanted to say is kids now are fighting a new battle because our generation, I'm, I, I'm considering myself Gen X, I'm 48. We did fight. I remember, like in 1996, seeing Ellen DeGeneres come out on TV. Mm-hmm. That was huge. And now Ellen, you know, granted, now people don't like Ellen because she's, you know, a crazy boss. But she's toxic, not because she's a lesbian, but because she's right, toxic. Right. Right. Yeah. And she's toxic to work for. And so it's comes such a far, comes such a wrong way, and. I, you know, I was also one of the people that fought for gay rights. I found it. I was one of the people that started within the first board of Amigas Latinas. I got people talking, a lot of people talking about this in grad school. Then I would talk about LGBT, just LGBT right, because that's what it was back in the right. 90s. There was no QA plus I questioning. I, I think I don't, I've lost, I, and I've gotten so old. That I don't even I don't even know what all the acronyms are, and I'm still learning. And I remember sitting in a session with a client telling me she was demisexual, and being so embarrassed that I didn't even know what that meant. And I'm thinking, and I was like the one that was like pushing the envelope <laughs> around all sorts of stuff 20 years ago. So they, and that's the thing. I think what happens is one generation opens up one layer of the onion, the next generation opens up another one. God knows what in 30 years, what kids are going to be fighting for. I think it's wonderful. But I think it's also, I think what, what I think does need to happen though, is people need to understand that previous generations made it possible for you to be worried about this. If women in the seventies hadn't fought for women's rights, I wouldn't have been. And then if people hadn't fought for women's rights and um, rights of person, people of color, I wouldn't have been able to write a scathing paper in grad school about the intersectionality of feminism and 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 men was women of color and why there were two separate movements. I wouldn't have never, and it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been possible because of those. And that's the thing. I think it's appreciating previous generations, not fighting back. But also, too, for our our generations to listen to these kids and be like, yeah, I didn't know demisexual was a thing. I need to go Google this and I need to go read about this to see what exactly it is and educate myself. It could be because like I am I'm like a cusper, but I'm technically a Gen X and I like my personality is more Gen X. Uh, I'm 41. So it's like, I'm right at the end, but I also, yeah, you're in the cusp. Yeah. I also think that like the Gen X, like us as parents are better at listening to our kids and acknowledging and validating 
versus the boomer generation was to us. I would, I would say, and maybe, I mean, clearly I am biased, but I now am 41 years old and am unpacking just how, like how much anxiety I had as a five, seven, 10 year old. And now I, I kind of like, if my daughter says something or she's sad or like, I, I validate. And even if it's a six-year-old's concerns, I listen and I go like, oh, okay. Like, thank you for telling me that. Or thank you for being honest. Or, you know, I understand where you're coming from. I don't think that the older generations did what you're talking about right now in terms of listening. No, they didn't. And I think a lot of people in our generation don't do that either. Right? I think a lot of parents in our generation, I mean, I, I've seen it, you know, in firsthand in, in my office where I think, I think our generation is better at it. I think though, than our parents were, but I think we still have a long way to go. Like, I know I do. I mean, I, and I'm the same way. I listen to my son and I'm, you know, I try to be that mom who listens all the time and is supportive, but you know, I don't always, you know, and I've seen other parents who literally just don't get it. And again, I think this is kind of where intersectionality comes out. You know, we have the privilege of being educated, of being in a very, very accepting community. And I, and I put a disclaimer because I think there are, Oak Park River Forest has a long way to go, but for the most part, it's a good place. We have a lot of people who at least try, right? There are still pockets in this world, even like, you can go to Cicero, you can go to Berwyn, you can go to parts of Oak Park, you can go to downstate um, where you're going to see parents who don't have the same level of education, don't have the same open-mindedness, don't have that, don't, don't have that, that community. Still, you know, yelling at their kid for being gay or, you know, you know, beating their kid because he's playing with dolls versus, you know, a football. So you still see it, but I think not as much. But I, but I think you're right, Kosha, is that our generation, I think, is getting a little bit better than the previous generation, right? And I think our kids will be a little bit better than us, you know, and it's hopefully there's progress over the years. Am I making sense? Yeah, know? absolutely. When you brought, when you, when you brought that up about, you know, you know, beating their kid for being gay or being upset that they're playing with dolls instead of football. I wonder how much as a, you know, in, as a professional, as a therapeutic professional, how much you see people talking about optics and how they are oppressed by what it's going to look like. Right. So I think sometimes a lot of people and families are like, I am okay with this, but I'm worried about what the neighbor is going to think. So you can be gay inside our house and I love you. But when you step outside, you need to fit in because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to have to answer for this. Right. Or I don't want to be, I don't want to be othered. Right. Right. That happens a lot. And I think too, it's safety as well. You know, I'm thinking about, for example, in some communities, um, thinking about a child that I know when he was five, he thought he saw his mom getting her nails done. 
and thought it was really fun and thought it was really cute and asked if he could have his nails painted. So, you know, mom painted his nails. He was fine with it. And we had to talk, though, about how it's fine to paint your nails. And it's but some people may not like it. Granted, this mom let him make the choice. And what ended up happening is he went to, it was preschool still. And somebody was like, oh, no, boys don't wear pink nail polish. And he came home and realized, I don't like this. And he took it off. But, for example, he had a pink beach blanket that he took to camp. that he that's what he wanted to take. And he was like, I'm taking this. Mm-hmm. He didn't care. And so some parents, I think, are worried about their kids being other to the point where they, they make it about them because they don't know how to communicate the, I'm just really scared you're going to get beat up fear, which is unfortunately very realistic. And so you do see, and so basically it's a long story short, you do see the parent who's like, doesn't want to be othered. And a lot of times it's that parent who just doesn't know how to word the fact that they're just really, really scared that their kid is going to get beat up or what if my child wants kids one day and I don't know how I'll be able to support them. No, I, I think, I mean, I think it's very, very true that, you know, most parents would choose to do anything they could to prevent their child from experiencing, you know, that kind of pain, um, certainly emotional and absolutely physical. Like if I could do whatever mm-hmm. I could to prevent my kids from being physically hurt, I would do that and emotionally hurt as well. Although, you know, I kind of recognize kids are mean regardless, like kids are mean to each other regardless mm-hmm. of what it's about. Right. Um, so that's a little bit part, part and parcel of it. And if they can't find something to pick uh, pick on you about, they'll make something. They'll find else. something. Mm-hmm. Certainly the physical, the physical part of it is very real. Um, but sometimes I wonder, you know, I'm thinking about say a family in Naperville, not any one particular mm-hmm. family, but someone in Naperville where there's a certain um, facade you have to present to the world yeah. and there are expectations. And like, I love my kids, but now this has put me in the position of being, you know, othered by my community, that kid's going to go to school. I don't know what's going to happen with that kid. Um, it's my kid's identity or identities has created a cognitive dissonance for me. And I'm having a hard time getting over it. Yeah. And that's where I think like groups like PFLAG are really good. Back to the idea of groups. They're really good because then they'll see another parent from Naperville. Oh, my kid goes to the same high school and it's fine. And they see that, they see that mirroring. Um, But yeah, that does happen where, I mean, where you see parents say like, how can you do this to me? And maybe I'm naive. I think the majority of parents want what's best for their children and want their children to be happy. And there are some parents who make it all about them, who make it all about, oh, what are the Jones going to think? Or what are they going to think about me at the country club? And I don't want that. And that does happen a lot. But generally, that's when, um, as a therapist, you have to look at that parent's issues and why it is that 
they're worried more about themselves than their child. That's, I think, a deeper issue than, you know, I'm worried about what the Jones think because most parents really want what's best for their kids. They may not know how to explain it. They may not know how to verbalize it. They may be afraid for their child. Often when that happens, it's because you need to unpack something else that's going on with mom or dad. And going back to what you were saying is like every generation unpeels part of the onion. I mean, we definitely see that in our family where, you know, like there's dad, I love you, but there are times where we've been really, really frustrated with, you know, my father, our father, I've been really frustrated and Shayla, she, or someone else has been like, look at how dad's dad treated him. And so actually how Mm -hmm. dad is responding to his kids is a huge leap forward emotionally in how he parents us. It's not perfect. And it's not maybe what exactly what we need, but he's coming with this certain baggage Mm -hmm. moving forward. So it's, it is like, okay, so if they're making it all about himself of themselves, where did they come from? What are the battles that are behind that? Right, exactly. What are their battles? And that's that's kind of what you have to unpack, like what's going on with them that they're worried about them. And and there's so many things that you have that you're project that you have to kind of unpack with the parent. And it's comp- I mean, it's complicated. You know, mm-hmm. therapy isn't it's therapy is messy. <laughs> yeah, you know. But back to that, very very well, true. true. Yeah. Um, Gosh, did is there something that you wanted to talk about that we didn't ask you about this time? Especially because we're talking about, I like, I feel we talked a lot about generational things and therapy, but you know, definitely we're talking about like LGBTQ that intersection. We'd love to hear, you know, if if you have something on your mind. I'm thinking about it. I think it's more that I think generational things are really key. They think, honestly, I'm starting to see the world as like two, we almost have like two worlds, like two countries right now. And you almost have to, when you talk to somebody, be like, all right, are they coming from like a blue perspective or a red perspective? Mm. It's almost right now we're so polarized I'm thinking in particular about one particular family I work with. I'm going to leave out a lot. I'm going to change a lot of the details, but one, one parent lives here. Another parent lives in another, in another state. And they have very, very different perspectives on raising their LGBTQIA identified child. I can talk, you know, to my, the cows come home to the, red state parent and they're not going to listen to me because we're so polarized. And so I think to really have true equality, there needs to be some way that both sides listen to each other, which is why I've kind of started coming from this perspective of everybody wants what's best for their child. And that's kind of where I've started coming from because mm. I have to, because I'm trying really, 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 really hard to understand some of these, re- you know, use my language, badass backwards perspectives 
right? And the only way I'm able to do it is by assume by having that assumption that we're all doing the best we can. It's actually a, a concept used in a form of therapy called DBT, where we're all doing the best we can. We're all doing the best we can, and we all we're, and we're all doing the best we can, and we all could do better. Thinking about those two things at the same time, I've had to go there because the dichotomy is so crazy right now, and the division in our country is so crazy that it's causing a lot of harm to people. And if you look at, you know, LG, the LGBTQIA community, they're being really hard hit because, you know, in some states, they're messing with their rights. They're messing with women's rights. They're messing with LGBTQIA rights. They're messing with the rights of folks of color. And I don't want to go to like a Handmaid's Tale scenario, you know, Right now, mm-hmm. I'm trying to go to uh, they're just looking at different a different side of the elephant scenario. Um, so I don't know. That's kind of where I'm at. So I'm kind of like part of this is kind of a plea to like yeah. listen to each other. And it sounds, and I don't want I don't want to sound Pollyannish, and I kind of do sound it, and I know it. Uh, I have to go there because otherwise, like. I'm going to like yell at parents, for example, (laughs) you know, some of them probably need to get yelled at, but you're not going to get anywhere that way. Right. That's not, I can't do that. That's not going to be effective. (laughs) Right. right? That's not helpful. You want to, to, but yeah, it's not going to get anywhere. And it's like, and coming from a place of compassion, I think is really important for both sides. both For all sides. Yeah. I mean, you almost have to go to like, okay, do do they have a red state perspective or a blue state perspective? Well, I consider, you know, like one of our our first guests on this season is a trans girl who is 16 and she lives in Colorado with her very, very loving, welcoming, open family. And school. And school. And yeah, like this, and we were like, well, what kind of struggles have you had in school? And she's like, none really. Like everyone's really, you know, and so their struggles are trying to get the insurance company to cover her top surgery, right? Whereas, and they both, we talked to her and her father and they both were very open with the fact that like, I know I am privileged living here in Colorado, having this fight when there are people like me who are getting beaten up, killed in Alabama or, you know, in in some of these other backwards, you know, red states and like having these horrifying, horrific um, bathroom bills that are really just about policing people's genitalia. So, you know, even within the community, there's privilege in certain areas and that's demographic privilege. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we also talked to, um, uh, you know, we've talked to a gay man and we've talked to a gay woman. And then, you know, then we talked to someone who's asexual um, and, and one of the things that came out of that is just how much privilege white, white cisgendered gay men have, you know, in t- especially in, you know, sort of in the hierarchy of the LGBTQA community, yeah. they're like, they own it all, you know, oh, yeah. they're, they're, they own it all. And then it's like white gay, you know, white lesbians basically. And then everyone else kind of falls 
behind that. And she was saying, you know, when when asexual aces show up, people at price they get told to go home. You don't belong here. Um, so there's even that othering within the, the community that's being othered, right? Well, I think here, I think here in terms of our generation and in term, even in this area, the asexual community, the asexual and also to the poly community as well, they get the brunt of it. They get, they're like lowest in the hierarchy because a lot of people don't understand asexuality. Like a lot of people just don't get it or yeah, they just don't get it. And struggle with it and they think oh I don't get it but I already did this other type of work so this is just stupid kind of a thing that's the attitude that people have you know and I'll be I'll I'm the first to admit I'm still I still struggle like I'm still learning about it I'm still trying to understand it the minute you think you know everything you're like in the most the most dangerous and so I, I do take a very humble approach to knowledge because a lot of times I just don't know the answers or I don't know any, everything. Yeah, the only reason I'm like that is become a therapist. And with my, in my field, there's always new things. But somebody who isn't from this community or somebody who has a, just a different way of thinking is going to be like, oh, yo, I learned that already. And like, I don't need to know. I don't need somebody to tell me how to swim better. I know I have all the information. I just need to do it. Right. But a lot of people walk around thinking everything is like that, and it isn't. And it's, I think this is true in communities of color. I think it's true in, you know, um, you know, the LGB, LGBTQA plus community, sort of you pick, a, you pick a subset of people and hierarchies get replicated. Oh my God, you know what? I was just talking about that with somebody this week who they were talking about like certain conventions, like, you know, if you look at like the poly, they're talking. I was talking about poly conventions with somebody. Mm-hmm. It was poly or like Comic Con or whatever, and it was like there's this hierarchy, and it's all geeks. You know, all people who are very nerdy who were ostracized, but they all got to pick on the furries. Everybody hates the furries, you know, and they're replicating that hierarchy that they grew up with. Yeah, it's like Star Trek and Star Wars people, and then like comic book people. And then, you know, like, then, like, other whatever comic, Comic-Con fans mm-hmm. sort of sprinkled in there. And that just goes down to, like, apparently the furries at the bottom, right? But there's so um, but there's so much of, like, you know, I think about this when I was going through college and I had, I was not, like, Greek. I, I wasn't in a sorority, but we had, I had friends who were pledge, yeah. pledging. Is that, and they would go through this horrifying, like, hazing ritual these hazing rituals Mm -hmm. and I was like why would you do this like oh my god like and they don't let them sleep and you know all this stuff I was like why would you do this Mm -hmm. and there's so much of like uh well I went through it so you're gonna go through it and that's so much of the like the when you were saying from comic-con like the the people who were bullied back in the day they're like now I'm at the top and so I want to know how it feels to be at the top and I need people to understand how it feels to come in at the bottom. Because the thing about it is they're stuck in this um, mindset of hierarchy. 
and our world is very hierarchical. And instead of dismantling it, they're just replicating it because they can't see another perspective. I think if you learn how to drive, for example, right? You know, you step on the brake, you put the gas on, you, you know, turn up the motor on. Now they're talking about like self-driving cars. And, and it's a totally different concept. You're talking about people's experiences that if you talk about just dismantling it, it's like, what? How, why would you even, the idea of like dismantling a system totally can blow most people's mind out away. Mm. And so they're going to replicate it. And it's also a way to feel powerful too. I mean, it's also a way to say like, hey, now I'm the popular person. Yeah. I'm going to feel powerful. I think the whole, I think that's why like with people who are non-binary or gender fluid, like at least I think not so much my generation, but I had mentioned it to a boomer about how gender is a social construct. And that boomer like we fought like it was problematic for a while like I had to just be like whoa just okay never mind like we're not going to talk about this right now because it I think it's going back to what you're saying is it is so okay I understand you know gay lesbian I understand being bi like those are sexual orientations but now when you're talking about gender and totally annihilating dismantling the, the framework that I have been in for 60 years, that it's just mm-hmm. impossible to shift. Yeah. Well, I remember learning about polyamory, for example, and my mind being blown. Like, mm-hmm. you mean like some people like love more than one person and it's okay and everybody's fine with it. And there's, you know, they work through their jealousy and they deal with it. That blew my mind away. Yeah. I think the reason I was able to understand it is I was raised to be open-minded. A lot of people weren't, unfortunately. A lot of people were raised on, this is how things are done. And this is, you know, if you think, I'm thinking about Fiddler on the Roof even. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen oh, yeah. that where it's like tradition and this is how it is. And then dad having to like deal with the fact that his daughter married somebody that was a Gentile. And his mind was blown away, right? Yeah. And so I think we all kind of grew up in that tradition sense and hearing about other things like, what, what do you mean by that? That's totally, that's not, that's not okay when it is. And it's just people now are coming out and talking about it more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, I do remember that in that show, it was, you know, the first daughter wanted to pick her own spouse her own husband and the second one wanted to marry someone who's kind of like outside of their like past I think Mm -hmm. but like Mm -hmm. still Jewish and then the third daughter wanted to marry someone who was a Gentile and he's like that's it like I can't that was his that was the breaking point where he's like that was like that was his line right so and just how that line is different for all of us depending upon where we started right if you come from a rural place the idea of someone being non-binary or gender fluid when everyone and everything that you knew was on a binary is it's, you need to process a lot more before you can get there. So very similar, I think, to what you were saying at the beginning, which is people don't come in with, I'm struggling with defining what a gender fluid person is. It's um, 
I'm really, you know, I'm really struggling in my relationship with my kid. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, or, you know, I'm struggling at my job or something like that, or I'm just really, I'm burned out or I feel, you know, I'm depressed or I'm anxious. Uh, people don't often, you don't get your, the issues like served up on a platter. Like this is, these are my issues. Right. Um, so to meet people where they are, I think is a fantastic lesson, both for uh, us as podcasters, our listeners, mm -hmm. but also just sort of generally, you know, the way to, yeah. the way to push change, however slowly, is to meet people where they are and not start with a, well, why don't you understand this concept, right? Um, or why can't you accept this? Yeah. yeah, if you come from a place of compassion and listen, you're gonna go a lot further. And granted, I work through this. I deal with this all the time. And I'm the first one that will be like, why don't you get it? You know, um, and yeah. it's something I, I'm, I still work on. I'm like constantly dealing with it because I know, I mean, I'm the first one to say a fight with my mom to be like, mom, don't, won't you get it? You know, or fight with somebody. To, I mean, I can't even like, I, I can't even talk to certain people on Facebook because I can't be compassionate with right. them, you yeah, know? Also, yeah. Right. Yeah. It reminds me of what Alicia said. So we talked to a gay woman. She was on last week and it's, it reminded me of something she said that actually like blew my mind was she was talking about coming out and she said, you know, I would, you know, when we come out, we expect someone to be there for us. But what I found was it was really important to be empathetic to the listener, the person you're coming out to, they're now taking on this whole different identity that you are saying that you are, they're taking on this big conversation. So if you, I mean, you have the power, you're giving them the story and so it's also mm -hmm. it you know with what is it with great power comes great responsibility so it's your responsibility then to come with empathy also and realize where they're coming from and that is i mean that is something exactly what you're saying is like no matter what you're talking about try to come with compassion mm -hmm. yeah try yeah. granted it's hard because if somebody is telling like if you're coming out to somebody and that person is saying, no, you're not, you're gonna go to hell. It's very hard yeah. to have compassion for that person. I don't, I wouldn't expect anybody to have compassion for that person. But I think for yourself, it's important to understand they just may not get it right now. They may get it come a few years. You may have to plant seeds right now. You know, yeah, you may be disowned. It's not, it's not, it's not fine. It's painful and it hurts. You know what though? If you're, if you feel up to it, send them a card at Christmas, you know, mm. if you feel like, if you feel up to it, I have gotten into Facebook fights with people who think wearing a mask is silly. Well, I'm going to wear my mask because guess what? I am, mm -hmm. I am compassionate for my community, but also I have asthma. If I get Delta, if I get the Delta variant, you know, vaccinated or not, I could die. I can't, it's hard for me to be compassionate with them if they're making fun of me for wearing a mask, even though I'm vaccinated. Um, or if somebody were to tell me you're going to go to hell, you know, I'm going to have a hard time being compassionate. Mm -hmm. I can 
say to myself, they're just coming from a place of pain. They just don't know. Maybe they'll come around. Maybe they won't. So is that, am I making sense? So it's like mm-hmm. understanding and having compassion. But that's where I also think the work, the, the work, that's why allies are so important. Because, for example, somebody may not listen to me for being a queer woman, right? But they're going to listen to somebody who's straight about how to be an ally or why it's okay. It's coming from compassion and for yourself is basically for yourself and the other person. Yeah. We love you, Karen. <laughs> oh, thank you. I love you too. You, you always come with like these just like beautiful word bombs that you're just like, yeah, huh, I feel better about the world right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm just like, okay, well on that note, we can't say anything more on that note. So usually right around now, we, we, we have two remaining questions. Um, okay. Uh, no, they don't apply. They don't, they don't apply because the first question is usually Shalushi asking, like, what advice would you give? And you just did. Well, how about this? How about, how about what advice would you give to your younger self? That's a little bit different. That's, that's oh, great. That's a very good question. That's deep. Have compassion for other people and yourself. <laughs> you know, I will say that I feel like that is the one thing that that compassion piece, the patience piece, um, the the empathy piece. I feel like is very hard for young people. Certainly, as I talk to my almost fourteen year old, I hear a lot of like, oh, but there's also a lot. There, I would also say like fourteen to twenty five is when young people, like you have a lot of energy to be like so worked up about things that aren't like personally affecting you. And also you have a limited experience. So you you just have one perspective of like, I can't stand out when this and that and the other thing, right? And I can't believe that someone would do that. How did they think that? And it's like, okay, first of all, you're stressing me out, kiddo. I remember myself at that age being like, well, that's just ridiculous. How could anyone think that you get 30 years out from being 14 or 31 years out from being 14 and you go, oh, I was very, very naive. And there are many reasons why somebody might think that Um, not all of them are nefarious reasons. Um, And there are someone, so many reasons why someone might be acting that way. One of which might be no one's ever, that person's never actually thought about it before. Exactly. They're, act, they're reacting. They're not actually, they haven't formulated their own idea about how they feel about this. They're just reacting based on what they've been told or what their community is telling them. Um, so uh, the compassion thing, I think definitely gets easier the more you have lived a life and you're just like, oh man, First of all, I have to have compassion for my own self 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and it's much easier to have compassion for other people when you're like, oh, there's a lot of stuff going on that isn't on the surface, right? And of you have to remember stuff. when you're 16, you're 14, until you're, I think, 25, I don't know, even 30, you're very egocentric. You know, your brain isn't fully developed until you're 25. You're still, I mean, in terms of, like 
psychology, you're still an adolescent until you're mm-hmm. 25. Like I still, you know, and you conceptually, you have to, ident- you have to think about people under 25 as adolescents because the brain just hasn't fully matured yet. And so what's going to happen, you're going to be very egocentric. You're going to think they're in very black and white terms. You're going to be very idealistic. Impulsive. Mm-hmm. Impulsive. And so as parents coming out, like if a parent were to come out to, to a parent, you know, if a child coming out to their parent, or if um, you're dealing with, you know, younger folks, it's understanding that they might have a, they might have a really good point that we're not seeing, but also having compassion that they just really don't understand that you may not get it. Mm-hmm. Like actually recently, and I think it's okay to kind of, I think it's okay to say this. I had somebody tell me that they know somebody that identifies as it. And I'm like, what? You wow. know, it? What? what is that? You know, and I had to like take a breath and be like, okay. This is very new for me because for me calling somebody, I mean, I remember in the nineties, not knowing what to call transgender people, not having the language and being called out because I use it because I didn't, for, and it, it wasn't about being, I wasn't trying to be offensive. I just didn't have any other words. I didn't know. And being told, no, that's extremely offensive. So, but the idea of like, it is something like not human. Right. right. And so hearing that, I was like, oh, my gosh, you know. And so they having compassion for the young person to, like, listen and do some research, all of, like, your own research. Mm-hmm. And also, though, having the child understand this old lady just doesn't get it. And she, you know, God, 30 years ago, God, I feel really old right now. 30 years ago, you know, this was offensive. Mm-hmm. Both people having compassion, I think, is important. I think that's where we need to go for. So, yeah, I would say that. But also understanding that a lot of times kids are so idealistic and it's wonderful. You know, it's wonderful that they are like, how can somebody be like that? You know, and right. they get mad and they want to and they want to go protest I'm like go for it you know yeah I mean there's nothing sadder than seeing a 15 year old who's like eh. eh. I guess people will be people right right it's like yeah. no you're too young to be this warranty yeah, exactly yes <laughs> Karen you are a joy yeah it's always great to it's talk so to you. great to talk to you we will you. definitely talk to you next season <laughs> and um yeah. Yeah, just go hug your, your beautiful you. kid. And um, I think we all should take heed and have a little compassion for ourselves and everyone around us. Yes, absolutely. You guys are funny. You guys are fun. Thank you so much. And thank you for being part of our podcast. We are, yes. we are over a thousand downloads. So now we're on to the next thousand. Yeah. yeah, so yeah. 15 episodes. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, what I saw was I, I Googled my actually I Googled myself and I we're on Amazon now. Yes. Like, are we on spot? Are you guys on Spotify, on Spotify and Apple yet? Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, um, Podbean, and what am I missing? Oh, Google Podcasts. 
That's amazing. But, yeah. but no, but a thousand's amazing. Oh, after like your first season. Yeah, 15 episodes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, and, and, you yeah. know, We're going to be on the road. We're going to be on the road soon. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. I know. Well, and it's one of those things where, you know, Sheila, she has said this before and she's, you know, we both feel very much like if we listen, if three people listen and those three people take something away from our stories, yeah, it, it has helped like, you know, with you or with, if, if one person is like, you know, maybe I do need to talk to a therapist or one person Googles asexuality.org because of Elisa Mm-hmm. it's like it doesn't matter what the numbers are but the but then the more the more people who listen the more chances we have of making those changes to people's lives you know exactly thank awesome. you so much take care so much. all right bye-bye bye. bye thank you bye